Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. Up next on 30 Minutes, a special reading with Luis Alberto Urea from a Day of the Dead celebration sponsored by the Confluence Center for Creative Inquiry at the University of Arizona. Luis Alberto Urea, 2005 Pulitzer Prize finalist for nonfiction and member of the Latino Literature Hall of Fame, is a prolific and acclaimed writer who uses his dual culture life experiences to explore greater themes of love, loss, and triumph. Born in Tijuana, Mexico, to a Mexican father and an American mother, Urea has published extensively in all the major genres. The critically acclaimed and best-selling author of 13 books, Urea has won numerous awards for his poetry, fiction, and essays. He's a professor of creative writing at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Here is Luis Alberto Urea. Buenas tardes, Tucson, Arizona, Tijuana in the house. Uh, yes, I'm Luis. I come from Rampa Independencia, Colonia Independencia, Tijuana, Baja California. And I just want to say for those of you out there who are under fire lately, proud veteran of Mexican-American studies. Thank you. So I just want to say, those of you who feel under siege, you must understand the one thing that those who push you around fear. It's not your anger. It's not your power. It's your love. Look around here. It's about love. So I, I was glad Javi talked about Nobody's Son, since I'm going to read from Nobody's Son. I thought it was appropriate because U of A book did it with University of Arizona Press, um, and I just wanted to bring it home. Some of you may know I lived here for a while. I lived in the Legion Grove Market down in the barrio, and uh, then I lived over here on North Vine in a little tiny white adobe for a while. Um, and, you know, I feel very close to Arizona. I'm a little leery to talk too much about your travails here because I, I feel like I'm a carpetbagger in a way because I'm not from here. But I did live here for a while, and you gave me my best books, the best things I've been able to do. So I feel close to this place, and I, I, I hope everything works out. So let me tell you a little bit about this piece I'm going to read for you. I thought for the Day of the Dead, you know, it was really important for us to make sure we honor our ancestors. Uh, I'm thinking about mis ancianitos, but there were a lot of young ones gone too, all the people who have gone before me. Um, I think about my aunt, Teresita Urrea, La Santa de Cabora, the Mexican Joan of Arc, gone. I think about my parents gone, my grandparents gone, my godparents gone, my aunts and uncles gone, several nephews and cousins gone. And I have to tell you, I will be damned if anybody tells me that they are less than human. Somebody tells me they should be stopped in the street and checked, or they shouldn't learn about their culture. I will not abide by it. So I wanted to read you a piece about my godparents in honor of them and in honor of your ancestors as well, those who went away. Remember, it's about love. It's from this book. It's called Sanctuary, the Peace. Mamá Chayo saved my life. She allowed her husband, 
the mighty Avelino Garcia to believe he had saved me. But that is the way powerful Mexican women work their medicine. They let men play act and strut while they work their medicine quietly and run the world. Healing has a woman's face. I had come out of Tijuana, ragged and skinny, fighting for life. I was four and a half years old. I had already survived German measles, intestinal infections, chronic bronchial infections, and scarlatina. By the time we crossed the border into the United States, I had a skin ailment that was eating bloody gashes into my skin. And I had tuberculosis. Our good neighbors in that poor 1958 barrio wanted to help, but... I, tucked into the corners of couches, coughed like a tiny dock holiday. They had children, too, and they became convinced I would infect them all, and they reluctantly banned me from their houses. My parents both had to work. They were desperate for some place to park me. The situation was hopeless, which, of course, is when miracles happen. My father was working one of the many tiresome, depressing jobs that would occupy his attentions for the rest of his new American life. He was a bread truck driver, a busboy, bowling alley attendant, janitor. In 1958, he had a job canning tuna at Starkist on the edge of San Diego Harbor. My aunt got him the job. He stood in his spot on the line from 7 in the morning till 6 at night. Sometimes he'd move off the conveyor belts and gut fish with steel blades on long pole handles. Sheep-sized fish came on chains toward him, and he unzipped them with his giant razor. Abelino worked in the slot next to my father. And when my father told Abelino, Mi hijo tiene tuberculosis, no hay nadie que lo cuide. Abelino said, Yo lo cuido. Tráelo a la casa. My father would leave home at 6 a.m. for work. I would stand beside him in the 1949 Ford tucked up behind his shoulder, feeling the hugeness of him. We would drive to 420 West 20th Street in National City, California, and there Avelino would be waiting, and all of the women of the family would be lined up on the porch to receive me. My father would hand me off like a little bundle to the women, and the two men would drive off to work. Mama Chayo and the women ho folk of the house bathed me and put their green powders on me and kidded me for years about the sorry state of my skin when they saw it. This is how the rescue operation developed. Father bundled me up at dawn. Avelino and he would drive away and the women would unwrap me like a present. They were surrounded by geraniums in their yard. She had, she had bred her own strains of geraniums. Some of them had navy blue flowers with sky blue edges. And when we'd pull up, the women rushed out and flowed down the steps and they'd steal me from my father's arms. It became obvious I wanted to be at West 20th Street more than I cared to be at home, so the daily routine expanded into weekends. I'd live with Mama Chayo from Friday until Monday. After a couple of years, preschool and kindergarten consumed my days. I always hated school, even college. I think back on it now and know I hated it 
because I wasn't in her house. How do you tell a story that cannot be told? I tried to explain the simple story of Mama Chayo for 20 years. I found that as a writer, I had to back into the facts. I had to hide the story in poems as though that act could tell it for me. It took me years to be able to tell you this. Things were still full of wonder in that house. Perhaps it was because I was still so young, though Mama Chaya was already old, and her capacity for wonder was not diminished. Maybe it was the times. Maybe the millennium is too late a date for small miracles, but I can still remember mundane things. They had a glow about them as they were part of some sort of revelation. Like the day I first ate sliced bread. I can't believe it. I'm tapping on a laptop computer, listening to a CD changer, playing Nine Inch Nails, and I first ate sliced bread one day. I had been raised on tortillas. I had eaten bolillos. But Mama Chayo brought this stuff on a plate with another magic potion called La Pina Barra. I was flabbergasted. They didn't call that stuff Wonder Bread for nothing. <laughs> the relentless contrast between West 20th Street and my small apartment in the hood certainly made the enchantments of their garden more vivid. At home, I was under siege from angry neighbors, scary vatos, and the parental jihad within. The weather report for the inside of our apartment, shadowy, with growing gusts and areas of darkness. In Mama Chayo's house, however, everyone was loved, period. There was always enough love to go around. Nobody was too tired, too angry, too depressed, or too tipsy to love. By love, I don't mean drippy sentiment. Nobody at West 20th made goo-goo eyes at anyone else. Love in that house was a bedrock fact, not discussed, not fretted over, never analyzed, barely recognized. Love simply was there is a way in which a family rises in the morning that says love. There is a way in which a family shares one bathroom that says love. There is even a way in which a cup of coffee at 3 o'clock on a slow, rainy day says love. Sure, they got cranky. They got fed up. They hollered at me. After all, I was a boy. I would thunder through the house and I would hear, Niño condenado! Mama Chayo and Abelino had been married forever, and they still loved each other enough that they could love everybody else. True love seems to be a spiritual loaves and fishes. It doesn't get used up. It keeps regenerating itself to feed all comers. Maybe that is what religious books really mean when they bandy about terms like living water. I think it fills up your heart. Then it starts to overflow and water everyone else's. Sharing their house with them were their twins, Gela and Fina, my first sweethearts, my older women. Gela, the sorrowful one, went out every day to clean houses. Fina, the sunny one, stayed home every day to clean the one house. I pursued Fina relentlessly, fascinated by the world of women. 
Occasionally, a ranchera song came on the radio that was so rabid in its accordion that Fina would cast away her broom and we'd dance like maniacs all over the living room while Mama Chayo cackled. We were especially fond of the shark song. Tiburón, tiburón, tiburón a la vista. That would get us booty shaking in a fashion that Avelina would have exploded in rage over if he wasn't outside killing termites. Kela, so mysterious when she returned home from those strangers' houses, so tired and beautiful in her sleepiness, wearing that strange magic of elipisticky. I would watch her etch in the lines around her eyes, watch her hit herself in the face with her powder puff. She even let me watch her snap her stockings onto her girdle snaps. Whew, I thought I'd faint. Sometimes I'd sneak in a room and taste her lipstick. On Saturdays, her day off, Kela would sit at the work table in the kitchen and sort the beans. That sounds far less enchanting than it was. Her graceful hands with their slightly long nails moved like dancers over the surface of the table. The pinto beans, hard and clacking like dominoes, swirled and skipped beneath her fingers. And without looking, Kela could spread and scatter hundreds of beans, all the while flicking out broken and rotted beans, sliding aside twigs and pebbles. At the same time, as if she'd grown a third hand, she was swooshing good beans into the cooking pot she held in her lap. Both sisters made tortillas every day. I attended the tortilla making each day as if it were a religious ceremony. It was clearly an ancient ritual. Every morning, from the days of Aztecs making plascaltines, Mexican women made tortillas. My father, an avid history buff, pointed this out to me. Kela or Fina would assemble the materials. They'd mix and knead and make dough balls. The dough balls would be sprinkled with dust of white flour, and the rolling pins would hit the dough, traveling in the shape of a cross, and somehow the ball of dough with two hard passes of the rolling pin would be transformed into a perfect disc. Whichever sister was not creating the tortilla would transfer the raw dough onto a heated flat pan where she used the wadded-up cloth to pop the blisters as the dough cooked. No matter what kind of dough Mexicans make their tortillas with, maíz or flour, all Mexicans from the days before machines, from the days before tortilla presses, have recorded within them the sacred rhythm of 10 million women passing life through their hands. Their palms drummed out a steady cadence that set the background beat for the music of laughter, gossip, coughing, arguments. All around the beat, there played the melody of frying, of pots clanging, of knives chopping, of water and plates and cups and spoons ringing. The ancient prayer, every time the hands came together, a prayer for our future. Every time the hands came together, applauding for our future. You are listening to Luis Alberto Urea on 30 Minutes, 91.3 KXCI Tucson, reading from Nobody's Son, and a special Day of the Dead reading sponsored by the Confluence Center for Creative Inquiry at the University of Arizona. Nina was usually asleep. She was that fabulous old woman who commandeered the sewing room at the side of the house 
It was on her old iron bed from the turn of the century, tucked in behind her sewing machine, that I slept. She had been taken in by Abelino many years before I was born, and she was the twins' godmother, uh, Abelino and Mamá's comadre. Nina was ancient. She was 90 years old when I was born. She was 90 years old when I graduated college. <laughs> she wore blocky black old woman's shoes as he, she slowly wearied of sewing or crocheting, and her hands would dip slowly, and she'd nod, and her eyes would slowly close, and the white whiskers on her chin would tremble as she started to snore. Nowadays, I suppose she'd be recognized as the crone, the storehouse of female wisdom. To me, she was the source of mystery. And in that home, mystery was a comfort. As time rolled on, Nina could only move from her bedroom to the sewing room and back to the living room to watch television. She rocked as she walked, heavily swinging back and forth while her cane thumped the floor. Nina and Mama Chayo, barely understanding a word of English, loved soap operas. Their number one show was Edge of Night. Now, you soap fans always tell me I get this character wrong, so whoever the character I'm going to mention apparently wasn't in Edge of Night, but you'll forgive me. They had no idea what the title meant. They didn't even bother trying to mispronounce it. They identified the show by the name of their favorite character, La Jessie. What show was La Jessie on? Does anybody know? General Hospital? Dang it! Well, I'll revise this. <laughs> Mama Chayo would shout, It's time for La Jessie, comadre! Ay, La Jessie, Nina would say, waking up. And she'd struggle out of her chair and thump out to her personal corner of the living room. She sat in a rocker beside that gold spray-painted bust of JFK. Mama sat on the couch eating oranges. Well, she never really ate them. She chewed them. After she'd chewed all the juice out of the orange slice, she'd spit the pulp into a bowl. Later, you'd find bright orange clots of her chewed pulp in the chocolate dirt of the mulch pile, little molds of Mama Chayo's mouth feeding the vegetables. One day, Abelino and I heard a ruckus in the house, women shouting. We rushed in to discover Nina and Fina and Mama waving their arms and bellowing at the television. Mama was leading the shouting. She waved one finger at the TV and cried, Jesse, no importa que hagas, pero no te metas en la elevadora. Doesn't matter what you do, don't get in that elevator. And Nina swooned and cried, Ay Dios, la Jessie. <laughs> Their garden was a kind of miracle, if only for this. Although it occupied, occupied one plot of land, it had two completely different places in it, depending on which of them led you out there. For Abelino, the garden was a place of endless productivity. It was where he went to raise the food we ate. He had filled it with sugarcane and quince trees, lettuce and chiles and nopales and avocado trees. He grew corn, cabbage, tomatoes, onions, squash, olives, grapes. Mama Chayo, when she took you by the hand and led you out the back door, took you into a world of fluttering green. You were suddenly in the midst of butterflies, hummingbirds, morning doves cooed to you. She grew carnations geraniums, roses. Her fences were covered with honeysuckle. Avelino harvested peas. Mama Chayo collected sweet pea blossoms and showed me how they formed little doggy faces, and when you pull the flower back, a tongue came out. 
She raised canaries, and the laundry room at the back of the house stayed warm all night, so she stacked her breeding cages back there. She made nests for the birds out of strainers, tea strainers, lined with threads. Each cage rang all day with such loud bird songs, you'd go home and still think you were hearing the birds. Sometimes I'd wake up in our apartment and think for a moment my parents had bought canaries. So intense was the illusion. Because the laundry room also con contained two large sinks, the women of the house went back there to wash their hair, all except Nina, whose age had brought her into such a state of grace that she didn't need to bathe. All dirt and grime just lifted from her body and was dispersed in the air. One day I was tearing through the house, having escaped one of Avelino's impossible chores when I stumbled into the laundry room. I could have been seeing a ghost. I was so startled. There she was, Mama Chayo, bent over the sink. She had the face of an Aztec queen, and she'd let her hair fall free. It was a waterfall, a veil tumbling over her shoulder. It had always been in a bun my entire life, and now it covered her like a shawl. She stood up and wrestled it back over her shoulder, where it fell as far as her bottom. Suddenly, my little Mama Chayo, in her home-sewn dress, in her old apron with her tattered cloth slippers and poochy belly, was a tall woman. She was powerful and fierce, and she couldn't stop smiling. She was young again. She was beautiful. So it was all about love, starting with love for each other. Every night, Abelino had come in from his pointless, busy days. And after their nightly feasts, huge meals prepared all day, he'd cruise over to the couch and recline. He'd pull out his dentures, spit a load into the spittoon, and settle in to enjoy a full evening of shouting insults at the television. Mama Chayo, having supervised the cooking, would relinquish the cleanup to the twins. She'd collect her latest crocheting project and take her traditional spot at the other end of the couch where she'd chuckle at his outbursts. Nina, if she was awake, would say from her corner, Ay, compadre, you're really funny tonight. But mostly she'd snore. When she started snoring, Avelino would nudge Mama and point at Nina and laugh. I'd watch then for the special gesture, the special love gesture. I almost quivered with anticipation. Some nights it took forever. On other nights it happened right away, but it always happened. I wonder now if each knew the gesture was going to happen. And maybe, just maybe, they held back, sort of stalled to build anticipation, like saving the, that toffee crunch in the chocolate box for last. Maybe, even though they were my godparents, my elders, maybe this was a sensual delight for them. They had a lot of kids. They were sexy. They were in their 70s, and they were sexy. So maybe it was one of those sexually as well as emotionally satisfying gestures, like when someone you love takes your elbow in a crowd, like when you hold hands, or when late in the night you reach out your hand and catch the cup of the hip bone of your partner just to feel the warmth, the life there. 
Or when somebody absent-mindedly runs her fingers through your hair like a comb, like your fairy godmother's fingertips were on your scalp or your mom's, and it makes you want to cry, and it makes you want to go to sleep. Or maybe a palm against your cheek. I'd watch for it. And sooner or later, Avelino's battered old slippers would come off, and he'd ease his legs up on the couch, and his feet would start to creep. His thin black socks would bunch around his rocky ankles, making a pouch at his toes. And those feet, first one, then the other, would move into her lap like cats. His smelly toes would knock aside her crocheting project. And she would turn and put her needles aside. And she would then look at the television set, the lenses in her glasses reflecting blue light as though she were generating light herself. And then, never looking at his feet, she'd put her hands on them. She wouldn't massage them. She'd touch them, hold them, cup them, feel his arches and toes, run her palms up and down them. It was the most extraordinary thing this foot fondling, and you could see his delighted toes in there wiggling around in his socks. Now, imagine the darkest day of our lives when she died. It was sudden, a stroke as she stood beside their bed on the side she'd slept on for 50 years, the side she had risen on every morning to follow him into the day. She fell to the floor beside her chamber pot where they found her gone. And the funeral, which is where this is all heading. I want you at the funeral. Her children, her nieces and nephews, her grandchildren, her acolytes, and me. Devastated. And Avelino, this hard old man, fierce, solitary, he spent the whole funeral attending to the mourners, patting my mother on the back, holding up the ones who went to the open coffin and collapsed. He wore a suit that looked like he'd owned it since 1948. At this funeral, I saw Avelino make the ultimate gesture of love. It wasn't for me to see, but like Mama Chayo's hair, it was a secret. I was lucky enough to glimpse and it has stayed with me all these years. Abelino's mute poem, his mute symphony. Right at the end, after all the many mourners had passed by, after my father had gone out to hide in his car, right before they closed the box forever and carried it to the hearse, Abelino stepped up to her. He didn't weep. He stood silently, gazing down at his one love, his one true destined love, the companion of more than a lifetime, and he studied her face. Then, with no emotion showing on his face, he reached into the coffin and put his palm against her cheek, his big, iron, calloused worker's hand. It trembled slightly, and it landed on her flesh as delicately as one of her butterflies. Just one second, no more. 
but all the love in the world was there in his palm, all the love in the universe, and all the tenderness, and all the grief, and all the beauty collected there in his hand and lay against her lovely cheek. For the ancestors, just remember there's no them, there's only us. Thank you. That was Luis Alberto Urrea reading from Nobody's Son and a special Day of the Dead reading, which was sponsored by the Confluence Center for Creative Inquiry at the University of Arizona. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager.